Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to begin, though, with this, and I'm just going to read from iPolitics.ca. Just a a few lines, opening story, uh, opening lines from the story. Borrowing from the old Canadian Alliance playbook, conservative leadership candidate Kelly Leach's latest policy proposal is a system of citizen-initiated referendums that would allow Canadians to regularly hold referendums to amend existing legislation and demand the introduction of new legislation. And I'd forgotten about the fact that the Canadian Alliance and Stockwell Day had proposed that. And the story goes on to to challenge the whole idea. Fair enough. Challenge is fine. But it's also an issue that we have talked about a great deal on this program over the years. And I think it would be a terrific idea, a terrific plan for this country to adopt this, this program, this idea, this constitutional right for you and me and any other Canadian to submit an idea, to submit prospective legislation, to submit prospective amendments to legislation, not to the politicians, but to our fellow Canadians. So if you had an idea, for example, to challenge the carbon tax, you might, on official government sites, pose a question or introduce a resolution that no federal carbon tax should go forward. And if enough Canadians, and the number would have to be determined, if enough Canadians signed on to that that, 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 uh, suggestion of yours, then on regularly scheduled referendum times each year, the question would appear on a ballot. Your question would appear. Should a national carbon tax be abolished? The notion of a national carbon tax be abolished. And then the rest of the country would vote on it. And what the majority of Canadians decided is what the politicians would have to do. So it wouldn't matter what Justin Trudeau wanted. It wouldn't matter what Brad Wall wanted. It wouldn't matter what anyone wanted other than Canadians, other than the voters, the citizens of this country. And it could be anything. It could be any issue. Just as the Swiss have done for over 700 years. It's in their national constitution. So a Swiss citizen has an idea, puts forward a resolution. A few years ago, the Swiss government wanted to buy a whole series of new fighter jets. And somebody's idea was, we don't need them. And so they put forward the idea, or the notion, or the motion, that the fighter jets should not be bought. And enough Swiss Swiss citizens signed on to that notion that it got onto the actual ballot And by majority, Swiss citizens said, we don't believe the government should be buying new new fighter jets, and so the government did not, because they're constitutionally bound to do what the people tell them to do. And we've talked a lot on this show, particularly over the last number of months, with the U.S. election campaign, about the populist movement, which has people frustrated with the status quo, with the elites making decisions. And I think this whole notion, this whole approach of referenda and citizens making decisions for government would go a long way to diffusing the populist anger. If we could, by majority, tell governments what to do, there would be true democracy, and I think a great deal of the unhappiness would disappear. In Ontario, you could challenge Premier Wynne's cap-and-trade. You could agree to it, or you could challenge it. It would be entirely 
up to the people of the province because you could have the referendums nationally, you could have them provincially. So what we're going to do when we come back, we're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll talk to Lutzi Stamm. He's the vice president of the Swiss People's Party. He's a member of the Swiss National Parliament. And we've talked to Mr. Stamm about this particular methodology of involving voters, in fact, giving voters the right, the constitutional right, to direct government, not to be directed by government, but in fact to direct government. I want to say one more thing. For reasons I cannot fathom, a significant percentage of Canadians, perhaps a majority of Canadians, don't like this idea, don't feel comfortable with the notion of citizens telling the government what to do between elections. I can't fathom why that is. Lucy Stamm is the vice president of the Swiss People's Party. He's a member of the Swiss National Parliament, and he joins us from Switzerland on the uh, Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Lucy, good to talk to you again. Good to, good to talk to you, and thanks for contacting me. How, I said 700 years. Is that correct? This system has been in place in Switzerland for 700 years? Um, not this direct democracy thing we are talking about tonight. That has been installed um, towards the end of the 19th century. But our country, indeed, is more than 700 years old. Okay, so I try to explain how it would work. But would you tell us, in your words, how the Swiss referendum system works? How does a Swiss citizen have an idea, have a thought, have a plan and then move that forward to the point that Swiss citizens actually vote on that thought, idea, or plan, and the government has to follow. How does it work? We have vehicles. One of them is called the referendum. The other one is called the initiative. The referendum is shortly explained. If um, the politicians pass a law, 50,000 Swiss citizens can collect signatures, and then um, nationwide you have to vote on this law. The initiative is something different. The initiative is you can take any subject you want to, um, lowering taxes, building a major road tunnel, whatever, and you can collect 100,000 signatures to launch an initiative. And then, at the end, the Swiss um, population has to vote on this question, whether or not you built this tunnel, whether or not you raised the taxes, etc. All right. So, in Canada, there is now going to be a federal carbon tax. It's going to be introduced over a period of years. So, if I decided, using the initiative system in this country, if we had it, that I wanted to challenge the carbon tax... I could do that. I could enter my idea. And if 100,000 people signed on, then that would be an official question on the next uh, referendums question or initiatives question. And, uh, and, and then the government would have to follow whatever the majority of people said they, they should do, correct? Correct. 100,000 people could um, take one sentence. For instance, it is illegal in Canada or in Switzerland to make such and such a, a, a tax law. Um, and then you could collect the signatures, the whole country has to vote on, and then in Switzerland it would be placed directly into our constitution. It is not legal to have such a tax. So the government has no choice. Correct. Um, if this 
if this um, sentence I, 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 I made up, if it is um, formulated or, or put in a, in, in a concrete sentence, this is sufficient. It then goes into the Constitution, and then the government, the politicians, they have no choice. They have no possibility to introduce this law. Is this popular in Switzerland, Lutzi? This is very popular. Um, the, the, I, would, I would guess you have between five and ten different subjects. People start and then as a result, a few years later, Okay, we lost him. Can we call him back, please? So uh, we heard the line starting to uh, starting to have problems, uh, as you heard. So it's really fascinating, and I, I wasn't aware of the of the difference between the referendum and the initiative. So the referendum, the federal government of Switzerland passes a law, and then fifty thousand people have to sign on to it or challenge it. And if 50,000 people um, challenge it, then it goes to the referendum question. And then if a majority, I hope I'm not confusing, if a majority of Swiss people after that don't like the legislation, it's set aside. Or if a majority of Swiss people approve of it, then it's accepted. And with the initiative, that's the one that I've been talking about where the Swiss citizen has the right to make a, a suggestion or, or write a sentence that would then, you know, I, I, we don't Correct. want the fighter jets, for example. Correct. I, I am on the line again. It must be the international line. Excuse me that we were interrupted. But indeed, the Swiss population could vote on anything. Please continue. And you say it's a very popular part of the it Swiss Constitution. Very as a result, three times a year, in spring, in summer, and in fall, we have to go to the polls, we have to vote um, on the different subjects, and then one Sunday in March you might have three different subjects, then in June again three others, and then perhaps in October remaining two, so you have between five and ten votes a year. Mm. What has been one of the more contentious, one of the more um, hotly debated questions for the referendum or the or the uh or the initiatives recently? One of the ma most famous ones was not um, to have free immigration into Switzerland anymore. We, have, we are not a country belonging to the European Union, but we have what we call free movement of persons, free immigration between Switzerland and Europe, and, um, or the other European countries. And then um, the Swiss population said, no, we want to end this. And that was fairly recent. It was, it was a narrow v vote, was Correct. it not? And, and Correct. Did, did, you not tell, did you not tell us last time? 50.3%. I'm sorry? 50.3%. Okay, but all it takes is 50% plus one. Correct. Now, you told us last time that in the instance of that particular vote, the Swiss government is defying the people or was defying the people when we spoke. Is that still the case? And how do they get away with it if it's constitutional? I'm at, I might always um, um, almost say this is an international problem, that this, uh, this dissatisfaction of the citizens toward, towards the government. I realized what has happened in the United States. I see what happens in Germany or in Italy 
where the average people um, get more and more angry about their governments. And a little bit, we have the same development in Switzerland, unfortunately, because you see the political elite after a vote. They are doing um, lots of funny tricks not to put into effect what the Swiss people have just voted on. So is is that a, a one uh, instance only situation in all the other cases? Has the government done what the people told them to do? Um, there is uh, some some other ex- exceptions, um, increasingly, but um, for the for, for the moment, it still is okay. Um, um, to take this example of before, um, when we would take say um, it is impossible to have a certain tax. Mm-hmm. There is no way the government can do it. The Swiss people, did did they not for 15 years refuse to pass a value-added tax or a goods and services tax, as we call it in Canada? The government wanted it, and for 15 years, the Swiss people said no, right? Yes. And that then eventually... Totally correct. And um, they, they found some other indirect taxes... But um, to make a long story short, at least we have much, much, much lower level than the other European countries. So in that sense, the Swiss population still has a very strong influence. I would think, Lutzi, that if the Swiss people can challenge and successfully challenge legislation that is introduced by the Swiss federal government uh, through the referendum process, that governments are careful most of the time about legislation they would introduce. Um, totally correct. Um, I, I stay with this example, taxes, because the politicians know um, in our capital that the Swiss people have more influence on the government than anywhere else in the world. They are careful to raise taxes. In that sense, it, is, um, it has a certain effect, um, even if you don't collect 100,000 signatures, um, and you don't put in process this this thing we just talked about um, because the politicians get careful. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. And you thought it was over on November the 8th. I guess emotionally we all thought it was over on November the 8th, the uh, U.S. election, but it really isn't. It won't be over officially until Monday when the College of Electors or the Electoral College members... 538 of them decide and vote who the president of the United States is going to be. And it should be Donald Trump because he has such a wide majority in, uh, in the Electoral College, 306 to 232. But there's this effort underway to persuade Republican electors to not vote for him. Not necessarily vote for Clinton, but not vote for Trump. And the idea is to not allow Trump to be, become president, and then it would go to the House of Representatives and they would do what they do and they would vote. What I found, quite frankly, hilarious is what came out of Hollywood where actors, some of them a little bit past, you know, the best before date, uh, put together this, this video pleading with Republican voters, electors, not to elect Trump I'm just going to play about 30 seconds before we speak with Fran Coombs from Rasmussen Polling. Just have a listen to about 30 seconds of this. And it's going to start with a guy who played uh, president in the West Wing. Um, Sheen, just have, have a listen and then listen to the funeral, the, the funeral type music they chose. 
It sounds like a wake. Listen. Republican members of the Electoral College, this message is for you. As you know, our founding fathers built the Electoral College to safeguard the American people from the dangers of a demagogue and to ensure that the presidency only goes to someone who is, to an eminent degree, endowed with the requisite qualifications. An eminent degree. Someone who is highly qualified for the job. The Electoral College was created specifically to prevent an unfit candidate from becoming president. There are 538 members of the Electoral College. You and just 36 other conscientious Republican electors could make a difference by voting your conscience on December 19th and thereby shaping the future of our nation. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. As you know, the Constitution gives electors the right to vote for any eligible person. Any eligible person, no matter which party they belong to. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm really not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. Really, I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. Fran Coombs, managing editor of Rasmussen Polling, uh, RasmussenReports.com, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We've talked to Fran many times, of course, throughout the election season. Fran, when you hear that, what do you hear? Well, I have to say the music sounds like it was from Hillary's party with her donors the other night in New York, doesn't it? Yeah, it did. The, like the, the, what was it? The, the, uh, the, the Wake with Christmas music. The Wake with Christmas music. Yeah, anyway, look, this whole thing, Roy, as you and I have discussed, is, is absurd. I mean, we, the recount, we, I think the last time we spoke, they were pushing the recount. I told you that was going nowhere. Obviously, this is going nowhere. It's like, you know, some of these Democrats just have to wake up to the real world and, uh, you know, get out, of the, get out of their safe spaces and, and uh, start living and breathing again. Um, that's the biggest problem, I think, for their party is is that the Clinton wing is so desperately trying to save her place in the history books, and that's the way I regard this whole thing. I mean, they're a they're trying to obviously raise questions about the legitimacy of, of Trump's presidency, but I think also she thought she was going to go down in the history books as the first woman president, and instead she's going to go down in history as one of the biggest losers in U.S. political history. And I think they're desperately trying to rewrite that somehow. Fran, what are the chances that on Monday, some point late Monday, everyone's going to be surprised? None. And, no, zero, zero. Because yeah. they only they only have one, right? They only have one Republican voter that we know of who said he won't vote for Trump. Right. I mean, again, it's like the recount. The the number, even even if there were a bunch of these so-called false electors, which there's not going to be. I mean, there may be a showboat or two, I don't know. But, I mean, the bottom line is they're not going to swing 30-some uh, electors. That's just not going to happen. And, and because, let's be honest, most of these Trump, the overwhelming majority of these Republican and Trump electors are very happy to be casting this vote. They're very happy to be trying to roll back eight years of Obama. Uh, they don't feel any guilt. They don't feel any, they don't have any problems with Trump. They like the direction things are going. I mean, our polling is showing that Republicans are ecstatic with his cabinet choices and uh, his agenda, uh, you know, roll back Obamacare, put conservatives on the Supreme Court. So, I mean, you know, maybe if you live in Hollywood, um, it's an earth-shaking event. But for Republican and Trump electors, it's, it's a happy day. I was looking at uh, RasmussenReports.com on your, uh, on, your, on your email feed, which people can subscribe to at RasmussenReports.com. Most voters in the United States think Donald Trump won fair and square and not because of Russian hacking. Right, right. Well, they, it's, uh, it's like 40, 
Forty-some percent think it was the weakness of her candidacy. I believe 43 percent believe it's, it was basically the weakness of her candidacy. Thirteen percent attributed to the strength of Trump's candidacy. So that's 56 percent right there. Then you start parsing away at the, you know, there's 20-some percent that blame Comey, and uh, there's, you know, a, a, a 12 or 13 percent, I believe, that blame the Russians, and then it kind of goes downhill from there. Uh, but basically what you're seeing is hardcore Democrats trying to find excuses for why she lost. Yeah, I, I find it uh, a little difficult to accept that the Washington Post and the New York Times, virulently anti-Trump, are using anonymous sources within the intelligence community. Nobody's been identified. No proof has been issued about Russian hacking. Right. Now, that, that whole thing, I mean, again, she tried it. They were, they were pushing that back in October, as you recall, in the right. second debate. She made a big deal about it, and we polled on it, and people didn't believe it then. Uh, and it's they've offered new proof. And as you know, Reuters had an excellent story two or three days ago in which the overall the director of all intelligence agencies in the United States says that he doesn't agree with their conclusion. Uh, and I found it very interesting that when the House Intelligence Committee asked for a private briefing to see the evidence, the CIA refused to show up for it. Speaks volumes. Fran, thank you very much for the time today. Thanks again for all the time this year. You've kept us informed, really well informed about what's going on in the United States. And a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you and yours. Same to you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The former federal finance minister, Joe Oliver, is with us. I think we had a bit of a mix-up with telephone numbers. Mr. Oliver, thank you for making the time. Great to uh, be chatting with you. So uh, I've said my piece about cap-and-trade and carbon tax and done it quite a bit recently. We spoke with Premier Wall on three occasions over the last few weeks. Uh, would you give us your sense, first of all, of the federal carbon tax that the prime minister insists and demands is going to take place? Uh, given the fact that the Americans, our closest competitors um, and customers at the same time, are not going to go in that direction, plus we have the provincial carbon tax in Alberta and the cap-and-trade tax that the Ontario premier is introducing on the 1st of January. Put, put all of this together for us, please. Where does it all fall apart? Well, the, the fundamental problem is that this is a very costly tax. It's going to, we don't know the full extent of it. We know some, of, uh, some aspects uh, of it. For example, the, uh, the cap and trade in Ontario is forecasted to cost $1.9 billion. Uh, the federal tax across the, the whole country, it's a na- it'll be a national tax, will we'll cost multiples of that, obviously. Um, and so it, it'll be a huge burden on individual Canadians. It'll make businesses less competitive, uh, and particularly in the light of uh, the, the Trump uh, election uh, and where he has declared definitively that he's, um, he's skeptical and uh, it's, it's absolutely obvious there will be no uh, carbon tax in the United States. Um, we, we have all sorts of economic harm going down. So the question is, will there be any benefit? And alas, uh, there will not be, uh, because uh, the environmental objective ultimately is to reduce, is, is not just to reduce carbon emissions, ultimately it's to reduce temperature. And what scientists tell us is that if every single country that is promised voluntarily under the COP21 Paris climate agreement does what it promises to, and there is virtually 
zero chance of that happening, starting with the United States. But let, let us suspend disbelief and say that that does happen. The end result will be a reduction in temperature by one half a degree Celsius in the year 2100. Canada's contribution to that would be roughly 1.6%. So we're talking about one thousandth of one degree Celsius in 83 years. That's and and, and, that's, and that's math. And that's math, uh, Mr. Oliver. That's math. That's math. math. Exactly. I, I so, spoke with I spoke with Bjorn Lomborg on this show on a number of occasions, and immediately after COP21 as well, and he told us, and I mentioned this a few minutes ago, the EU 2020 policy on global warming is going to cost $250 billion per year and accomplish dropping temperature by one twentieth of a degree by the end of the century. And then he wrote, after we spend $20 trillion over the century, we'll have done something you can't even measure. I know this is actually a looming tragedy. It's not only a disaster, but the people who always pay for draconian taxes are the people less, least able to do so. So it's, it's the poor, the unemployed, not only in, in the advanced countries, but in the countries that are desperate for economic development. Uh, there are over a billion people who don't have electricity. There are another billion plus who have only insecure access to electricity, they're going to be hurt the most. You know, you look in Ontario, though, here we are, it's a, we're in a first world country, people are making decisions about whether they should turn down the heat in the winter so they'll have enough money to pay for groceries. Now, we've talked I mean, to them. This, this is unacceptable. We've talked to them on this program. We've talked to the people who, have to, who are making those active decisions. The Premier says it's a mistake, her mistake. Yeah, it's it's her mistake, but uh, quite a mistake. She's done it, and she uh, she doesn't seem prepared uh, to uh, to do anything to reverse it. She may try to shift taxes around uh, to to create an impression of, uh, of of help, but at the end of the day, electricity costs have gone up seventy percent, and uh, people are hurting, and industry has become uncompetitive. We could go the route that Europe has gone which is deindustrializing because their energy costs are so uncompetitive that European countries companies are moving to the United States where where costs are are so much less. You know, there's all sorts of justifications that we hear for a carbon tax, but none of them really stand up to scrutiny. You know, the biggest one is it will make a difference. Well we just talked about the fact that actually it won't make a difference at all. Then the other argument is we should do our part. Well, others aren't doing their part. We know the United States is not. China has made no commitment uh, to do anything until 2030 when they'll get around to making some kind of commitment. Meanwhile, 300 million people in rural areas will have moved to the cities. Now, I cast no blame on the Chinese because part of the country is desperately poor, and they have to do something about bringing uh, these people up to a... uh, uh, to, to a level of, of, of affordability. But nevertheless, that's a reality. It's also a reality there's going to be some 2,400 coal-fired plants built that's right. in the next few decades. That's right. So, you know, do our part. That doesn't stand the screen. Well, how do, we know, how do we know, Mr. Oliver, how do we know what doing our part really means? Because we, uh, Mr. Wall told me 
that the day after the Prime Minister stood up in Parliament and uh, dictated that there would be a carbon tax, thereby surprising his environment minister and provincial environment ministers who were talking about that very thing when uh, Mr. Trudeau jumped up with his announcement, Mr. Wall said he spoke with the Prime Minister the day following, and he asked the Prime Minister, have you done or have you, com- have you conducted any kind of economic impact study? No. How can you make such a fundamental shift in taxation and not do an economic impact study? Well, it's it's because it's mindless. They seem to be driven by ideology and and partisan advantage. You see, the the the, the prime minister has a problem. He he went with one of the largest delegations in the world, twice the the size of the U.S. delegation, by the way, to Paris, and made these extravagant uh, promises, which apparently he can't meet, and so. Uh, he's got to figure out ways to uh, to do it, uh, including uh, perhaps one of the most egregious ideas of all, which is to buy uh, international carbon credits. In other words, <laughs> buy useless pieces of paper uh, to pretend uh, that we've done our part uh, to reduce emissions. Well, isn't that something we should really be focusing on, that the government, the prime minister has said, it may be necessary to buy international credits for a national program that he's putting in place? Why would we buy international? The very fact that he says we should maybe be buying or likely be buying international credits, to me, proves that the national program's not going to work. Well, it's a, it's a stark admission. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Harry sends this email. Roy, hey, with this climate change plan, with the movement of money from one group or industry to another, and us having to cut back on heat and food, etc., to save the planet... We never hear when the planet will be saved. If the temperature cools in future years due to this brilliant money movement and green energy, how will they know or measure the direct cause and effect? When will they know it's a failure? That's a very good question, Mary. And and, and recently, you may have noticed this as well, I've heard the year 2030 mentioned over and over and over, whether it's a national context of Canada or whether it's the green movement in the United States or Europe. It's 2030 seems to be the benchmark year to accomplish some sort of magical goal. My guest is Joe Oliver, the former federal finance minister, who uh, is also uh, running for the nomination of a uh, riding in Ontario for the Progressive Conservative Party. What's the riding, Mr. Oliver? It's York Center. I'm sorry? It's York Center. York Center. Um, does that 2030 year mean anything to you? I've just seen that over and over recently. Well, it's interesting for a number of reasons. One is, of course, it's far enough away that uh, the current uh, political administrations across the country won't have to uh, uh, explain uh, why their projections didn't work out. Uh, but uh, they should be explaining today why uh, their ideas are going to cost Canadians so much money. The other interesting thing about 2030 is that's the date that the Chinese have said they're going to make a commitment to do something about global warming. Uh, You know, we hear so much now that China is showing the way. I'm a bit puzzled by that. I don't blame the Chinese, who have a huge population that's that's very poor, and, and they have to provide electricity, and they have to create economic growth. I don't blame them. But uh, are we be t- being taken for fools here uh, as well? We, you know, we, we look down in the United States. I, I have great admiration for that country. But the fact is they're buying our oil 
at a $13 billion discount from the international price. Uh, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, uh, has said no more Canadian uh, pipelines. And in the meantime, uh, while the, the president uh, likes to cloak himself in green, uh, the fact is the United States is becoming the, has become the biggest producer of oil in the entire world. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're being, uh, we're being taken uh, uh, for suckers uh, around the world. And, uh, you know, the people who are being hurt are, are ordinary Canadians. This is also perhaps the one issue that you're not allowed to challenge. If, if you challenge the notion of green taxes, if you challenge cap and trade, if you challenge carbon taxes, you're immediately branded a, a denier. If you, if you challenge global warming, uh, if you challenge greenhouse gases as the primary source of greenhouse or at least of, uh, of global warming, you're immediately labeled a, a denier. It's almost become a religion, uh, and, well, and, there, and you're there, not permitted there, to challenge it. There is, there is a religious aspect, but I'll tell you what I do. I do not challenge global warming. I don't challenge the anthropomorphic sort of uh, the, 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 the contribution that human beings are making although we don't know the extent of it, um, and we don't know the extent of, of global warming. But what I'm saying is that the policies that are being put forward will not achieve the environmental objective. In other words, if you're a great believer in all this, you don't have to be, but if you are, this is not the way to go about it. Because as we discussed earlier, it doesn't have any meaningful impact on global temperatures at all. It's minuscule or less. And when, when it, you know, that's the definition of bad policy. It's a policy that has huge cost, all sorts of unintended consequences, and doesn't achieve its public purpose. And that's what we're dealing with, with the, uh, the, the whole issue of carbon taxes, cap and trade, and the purchase of international credits. Well, let me ask we you should, this. Yes. You, 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 come, you come at this as the former federal finance minister, and you come at this as a candidate for the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario for the next election. Uh, you're looking to, to become the candidate. You're running for nomination. Right. What is it that the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario brings to the, to the whole issue that makes greater sense? Because, frankly, I've spoken with Patrick Brown on a number of occasions, and I haven't heard anything from Mr. Brown that makes me feel particularly uh, energized that he has... a a really distinctive and, and useful plan going forward. What do the Progressive Conservatives of Ontario have ready to roll out? Well, the, the fundamental distinction is that he wants to make sure that the tax is revenue neutral. That it, the, and, a, and a carbon tax is essentially a consumption tax. So what he is saying is that if uh, a consumption tax is imposed, he would compensate that by reducing income taxes on individual individuals and taxes on corporations. So it's a, it's a shift in the tax burden. It isn't an additional burden, and he believes that that will increase economic growth. But by how much, and how does it how does it how does it grow the economy if our neighbors to the south will not have a carbon tax or cap and trade other than at the state level? Well, that's one of the uh, the, the concerns. Um, the the other the other issue, um, unrelated directly to uh, to a carbon tax, is the fact that 
the, the president-elect has made very clear he's going to reduce, he's going to bring down individual taxes and corporate taxes. He's going to bring corporate taxes down from, I think, 35% to 15%. He's going to reduce uh, the, the number of tax brackets, I think, from 7 to 3 and increase the deductibility so that individuals will be paying a lot less tax in the United States than they're paying in Canada. Do you know, in the previous eight years during uh, the, the conservative uh, government's uh, reign, uh, we led the G7 in economic growth. Our GDP was higher than the other G7 countries. That's changed, and to the extent that the tax burden is going to be higher in Canada than in the United States. But I, but I still, but I still Mr. Oliver, with respect, I still don't hear anything that, that, that shows me how we will be at a competitive advantage with a revenue-neutral carbon tax vis-a-vis the United States. How do, well, we know, how, do we know, how do we know how far to lower taxes when we, don't, when we don't have any economic impact studies of such a tax? Well, we're going to have to, I mean, you know, in Ontario, we're going to have to take a look at what the burden on Ontario is. And if, uh, if the cap and trade is, is $1.9 billion, then the, the income taxes and the corporate taxes have to be reduced by at least that amount. But then you're accepting, I mean, the, I, but then you're accepting the numbers of Premier Wynne. Well, uh, I, I'm not necessarily accepting them. The, the, the analysis has to be done. And in fact, uh, you know, the, the cap and trade has been uh, a, bit, a bit of a disaster. And the, uh, the numbers for, um, uh, for the, the cap and trade market have gone down, I think, by about a sixth. So uh, the, the um, market that Ontario is going to join, which is Quebec and California, um, has, has seen prices fall, uh, and they've fallen because uh, the, the jurisdictions have given away so many credits free to companies that they want to protect. All right, so well, let, me, let me ask you this. In, in, in conclusion, how do, we, how do you, um, your former federal finance minister, I assume that if you, I assume, first of all, you'll win the nomination for York Center. Then I assume. I, I don't make assumptions. Well, I will. I'll, I'll do it for you. If the Progressive Conservative Party wins in Ontario, and they have a very good chance of doing that with Premier Wynne's personal popularity at 16%, according to the most recent Angus Reid polling, uh, I assume you'll be the finance minister for the province of Ontario. I, I don't see anything else happening. What do you have ready to roll out that will improve the reality from the very, very situations we first started talking about, and that is the impossible situation? the poor of, of this province face, trying to balance buying food, paying rent, paying electricity, keeping their heads literally sometimes above water. What have you got in place to roll out to, to help these people? Well, look, first of all, I, I do have to say that I, can't, I will not make an assumption about who's going to win the nomination, and I certainly won't take to myself what is the premier's what would be the premier's responsibility to, to make his cabinet choices. But if you're just asking me about policy, sure. uh, in, in principle, uh, what, I would, what I would say is uh, we have to do whatever we can to get the electricity prices down, both to make life more affordable and to make business more competitive. No, I understand that, but is there, is there, anything, is there anything in place? Is there, is there any plan? Is there anything that you understand to be ready to roll out to make that very reality come true? Well, I can't talk to the, the broad uh, policy, but, uh, but uh, except the objectives are clear. Uh, 
jobs are going to be at the forefront. Right. Uh, we're going to we're we're not going to be raising taxes, and uh, we're going to be focused on 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 exports uh, and economic growth. I mean, on the we we've got to recover. Ontario used to be a leader in Confederation. Ontario was always a contributor. It was a have province, and that was good for Ontario, and it was good for the rest of the country. Since 2009, Ontario has been a have-not province, groveling for higher equalization payments. I mean, this is a very sad state. I don't want, as an Ontarian, to, to be receiving equalization from the government of Canada. I want to be a contributor to equalization. I, yeah. want, I want Ontario to prosper, which is good for Ontarians, and it's good for the entire no, country. I, I, I want the entire country to prosper. Yeah, No, I understand. I understand, Mr. Oliver. What, what people don't want, though, is just a rebranding of the same positions and the same policies and the same approach. That's what absolutely. people don't want. And, and you're absolutely right about that. But I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much. You're most welcome. It's been great. All the best. Joe Oliver, the former federal finance minister who's uh, running for the nomination of York Centre um, for the con- Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. We have all, I'm sure, with horror, watched what's been going on in Aleppo as it's appeared on our screens. Colonel Peter Mansour is the former executive officer to General David Petraeus during the surge in Iraq. His book is uh, Surge, My Journey with General David Petraeus and the Remaking of the Iraq War. He's also a professor at Ohio State University. Um, Colonel Mansour, it's good to have you with us. Good afternoon, Roy. Great to be on. Yeah, this Assad's military forces captured Aleppo this week. Why is the situation, why did it become so disastrous? Is it the Assad government, which must bear responsibility, propped up by Iran and Russia entirely? Or does the United States have at least some responsibility, as President Obama never followed up on his red line threat, were chemical weapons to be introduced, which we know they were? Yeah, well, certainly the lion's share of the responsibility has to go to the perpetrators of the war crimes in Aleppo, and that's the regime of Bashar al-Assad, backed by uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia and, and the Ayatollahs in Tehran. But, um, you know, President Barack Obama, his legacy will certainly be tarnished by his inability to do anything in, in Syria and his belief that uh, any sort that, that the United States only had a unitary choice, either do nothing or go in with 100,000 troops and get fully involved in the Civil War. And I just reject that that binary option that he keeps throwing out as a straw man. In fact, there was a lot of other things the United States could have done, and he rejected all of them. And as a result, uh, the the rebels got uh, got hammered. It must be difficult for members of the uh, of the military, particularly those who are in Iraq, to see what's going on. And it, and and I guess I'm repeating what you said, and to hear the the president say what he's saying. Yeah, well, I think uh, for for those of us who fought in Iraq, and I was there uh, for two different tours, 28 months total, spent uh, you know a lot of my adult life uh, in in Iraq uh, fighting and watching our uh, soldiers die. I think we're we're more disappointed by his the president's failure uh, to maintain troops in Iraq when we had that war won. 
And uh, that failure to do that, uh, withdrawing our forces, withdrew the leverage that we had on the Iraqi government, and it subsequently became a very sectarian government uh, and partially beholden to Iran next door as well. And, and what could have been a great foreign policy and national security success for the United States after the surge was thrown away for, for really no good reason. And then when you say you had the war won, you're talking about the time that, uh, that during the surge when you essentially had ISIS was, was, was almost non-existent and al-Qaeda was, uh, was decimated. Well, yeah, they're one and the same. So al-Qaeda in Iraq, the forerunner to ISIS, uh, we had it uh, defeated, uh, nearly destroyed, and uh, all we had to do was follow up on those successes uh, in both uh, the military and political spheres. Uh, but once we changed uh, administrations in the United States, the Obama administration lost interest in Iraq, and as a result, it threw away one of the greatest opportunities that we had, and uh, the result is the disaster that you see today. White House a few weeks ago said there was nothing left to talk to Russia about over Syria, and Secretary of State John Kerry told Syrian opposition in a leaked conversation that the U.S. has no legal justification to be fighting in Syria and would be in violation of international law without a resolution supporting military action from the Security Council of the United Nations? Well, I don't think so, because um, ISIS falls under uh, the resolutions dealing with al-Qaeda. So certainly we can get involved in Iraq, at least uh, fighting ISIS. Um, In terms of uh, arming the rebels, you know, Security Council resolutions have never stopped us in the past. We armed the Mujahideen against uh, the Russians in Afghanistan in the 1980s without a Security Council resolution. So I think that's just, um, you know, justification for doing nothing. Colonel Mansour, is the focus still on ISIS, and how powerful or perhaps influential does ISIS remain as an international entity? Uh, The focus will certainly be on ISIS. The Trump administration... um, has, uh, has no interest in getting involved in, in Syria. Um, it has uh, made noises as to how it agrees uh, that Russia and is doing good work there. And, um, you know, it's just crazy talk, but that's where we are today. So uh, a Trump administration will focus its efforts on destroying ISIS and do n- not much else. In terms of ISIS's capabilities, although its uh, caliphate is shrinking dramatically and, um, and it's losing ground, in the Middle East, um, I think what you're going to see is the is the various um, uh, guerrillas and, and terrorists that are in the ISIS homeland now will flee back to their home home countries. And many of them, up to 5,000, have European passports. Maybe up to 100 have uh, American or Canadian passports. So you're going to see some homegrown terrorism around the world in, in years to come. It's going to be one of the greatest challenges for the Homeland Security Agencies of the West. It was so painful and so difficult to see the people, and still is, to see the, the, the residents, the people, the remaining people of Aleppo struggling as they, as they were and are to just, just stay alive and, and get help to those who, who required the help. And the question repeatedly was, why do the ceasefires fail? And, and what I heard was because the most violent and radicalized groups will continue to fight even if the U.S., Russia, and the Assad regime declare ceasefires. Is, is that a fair assessment? It is. Uh, the ceasefire has failed because uh, Russia and, and uh, Syria had no interest in really in honoring them. Uh, they were simply giving lip service to the humanitarian 
and diplomatic process, but in fact uh, they wanted to destroy the rebel groups in Aleppo, and they've succeeded. But what this is going to do is radicalize the opposition. The opposition sees the United States doing nothing. It doesn't believe uh, there is a moderate way out, and so the people of Syria simply will gravitate towards the, the hardline uh, opposition, which is uh, a front for al-Qaeda. Colonel Mansour, what lies ahead, not just in in Syria, but perhaps more regionally with the new Trump administration and certainly uh, a pressing need for for, for strong policy and, and direction? What, what do you see lying ahead? What would you advise? Um, I don't see strong policy coming out of uh, the Trump administration. He simply um, uh, is too all over the map in terms of his uh, public statements now. Maybe once he's in office, the gravity of the situation will take hold and he'll actually develop a policy. Um, you know, I'm somewhat uh, optimistic given uh, uh, General James Mattis as head of the uh, Department of Defense. That may put a voice of reason in the National Security Council, but um, I don't think uh, that U.S. policy will be settled for some time to come. I think it's going to take a long time for Donald Trump to actually um, develop a policy that he can sustain over the long haul, if, if that indeed that ever happens. Um, in the meantime, I think Syria will go the way of Lebanon during its civil war. Remember, the Lebanese civil, civil war took 15 years yes. to, to resolve, um, and, and then finally it only resolved with a foreign invasion by Syrian ground forces. So we're only in year six of the Syrian civil war, and there's a long way to go with a lot of destabilization left to occur around the Middle East. So I, I guess big picture, how does this end and when and where? And does it have the potential to spread directly into Europe? Um, you know, uh, we in the West like to see definitive beginnings and endings to war, but that's not the history of warfare, which is usually messy and chaotic, especially when you're dealing with civil war and, uh, and, na- and nation states that are not, uh, whose boundaries are not necessarily drawn uh, definitively, and I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a redrawing of the map of the Middle East along sectarian lines. It's going to take decades to play out, and it will wash into Europe, uh, given the refugee flows into Europe and and the uh, is- Islamic populations uh, in Europe already. Specifically, uh, the the French um, um, Muslim population, which has already conducted homegrown terrorism there. So uh, an unstable reality for the foreseeable future. I think so. I, you know, there will be pockets of, of hope. Tunisia, uh, for one. Morocco looks pretty good. Um, Egypt, although it's under a military dictatorship, seems to be holding together. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of uh, question marks over there uh, in terms of Libya and Yemen uh, even Saudi Arabia, uh, given its uh, its, uh, its system of government, is is fragile. Uh, Iran continues to foment uh, war throughout the Shia Crescent, and, and of course Iraq and Syria are basket cases. So, uh, I don't see a lot of hope for stability um, anytime soon. Um, but it will take strong policy by the United States and and its allies to if there will be any hope of stabilizing the situation. Professor uh, and, uh, and uh, Colonel Peter Mansour, former executive officer to uh, General David Petraeus, his book is Surge, My Journey, where General David Petraeus 
and the remaking of the Iraq War. Colonel Mansour, thank you very much. Uh, best of the Christmas season and a new year to you. Thanks, Roy. Happy holidays. Thanks. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. It is time for Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, Linda Leatherdale at Linda Leatherdale, Michelle Simpson at Michelle Simpson. They're the beauties. I'm the beast. And our final B&B for 2016. So we've extended it by a matter of minutes. I couldn't persuade them to stay any longer than that. They said no. <laughs> they said no. They said, unless we get a raise. <laughs> which I... We want our pay doubled. Well, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll take care of that for you. So do I'll most t- union members. Never two, mind. Two times zero is still zero, though. <laughs> yeah. Are we union Hey, listen. <laughs> listen, you guys get all sorts of great exposure and we well, have. clearly and we're we still have. here, Roy, so there's got to be something. We, we economists call it psychic income, if you can believe that. Oh. Which means you get something out of it other than money. Yeah. And there well, actually which is, is a trust so, so refreshing. Psychic income. And we, got to, and we have a lot of fun. And Maybe we, in our case it should be psycho income. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, for sure. You know, I was looking back at 2016 this morning. I went back, I had a little time, and went onto, uh, onto my files. And I look back at some of the issues that we talked about in 2016. And it's amazing how often the name Trump and Trudeau came up. And I thought, six weeks ago, if you'd asked most people, they would have said, well, it would have been Clinton and Trudeau that you'd be talking about. Trump would have been a byline. But no, it's, it's Hillary who's the whiny byline now. And, uh, and really, it's Trump and Trudeau that, uh, that, that carry the day. There's a lot to talk about. There was, of course, the... They, in Canada, there was a massive, that massive wildfire in Fort McMurray that, that, that destroyed the community. And, and I think we remember talking about the Wood Buffalo Council doubling its salary in June at, at that time. I just, I just remember that as, as being one of those issues that really annoyed me, that really, and it annoyed a lot of people, uh, that they would double their, their salary at that particular time. There's the electricity pricing in Ontario. There's Brad Wall versus uh, versus Justin Trudeau. There's Trudeau's behavior. There's the fundraising dinners, the expenses for the cabinet ministers, the resignation from Parliament by Stephen Harper, um, uh, Gerald Butts moving expenses, and uh, those of uh, of his communications director. What's what's um, what's her name? Uh, Katie Telford. Telford, yeah. Uh, and uh, the Tim Bosma murder trial. There were there were many issues that we discussed in 2016. May I ask the three of you? To tell, to share with us, what's the number one issue for you in the in 2016, Catherine? Why don't we start with you? Well, I think I'd have to say the economy, and yes, I'm biased because that's my background. But I think too, the most important thing for most people is your your welfare, like your you know your, your well being, that of your family, putting food on the table, roof over your head, all that corny, you know, Maslow's higher or hierarchy of needs stuff, um, and and we got a lot of worries there and so that's to me uh from you know from the canadian standpoint anyway if it was the world maybe something different but i think in canada i think that's got to be number one what is it about the canadian economy and how, what happened in 2016 and projects forward into 2017 that concerns you the most well i think it's the denial by our so-called leaders of reality and when I look back, sometimes I think we're living in some kind of bizarro world where the, 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 the normal rules are reversed. They don't apply. And we've got, for example, Rachel Notley in Alberta 
saying, oh, we're going to impose this carbon tax, but it'll be good for the economy, and it's not going to percolate down into the price of goods and services. Are you nuts? Of course it is. We have, you know, we have Trudeau saying, oh, let's keep spend, spend, spending as a government, even though we look around the world and we know governments that have spent themselves into a stupor, all they have to show for it is massive debt and a weak economy, not a stronger economy. You know, I, I see the, the environment minister saying, oh, our carbon tax is gonna, just going to boost Canada. We're going to have all these green technologies. We're going to sell everybody around the world. Yet every other country that has imposed that has hurt people, hurt average people. The elites have done quite well. There's a lot of people that make money from siphoning tax dollars into their solar, you know, their solar panels facility or whatever. But again, we, we seem to want to deny evidence in so many different areas. And why, you know, the old, the old saw about if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. We're doomed to repeat it. And, and I just don't see enough people, enough average people that vote for governments and so on, saying, wait a minute. Now, mind you, Roy, you mentioned Trump off the top. Maybe the Trump uh, election, shocking many, many, many people, you being the exception, Roy. Uh, but, you know, maybe that Trump election suggested people are starting to give their heads a shake and say, you know what, this isn't, this isn't commonsensical, this stuff our leaders are spouting. It's actually garbage, and it's hurting me. And we, sadly, we need more of that reality check so that maybe we'll, we'll, we'll call our, our leaders on the carpet and say, no, we don't like this. We want a reversal of this stuff that you're foisting upon us. We have one minute before we take a break. I'll ask uh, both Linda and Michelle to give us uh, their number one issue for 2016. And then when we come back from the break, I'll ask you to expand a little bit. Linda, what's the issue for you? Well, I'm going to take a lighter note right now. But Sweet Emotion was the song as we led into this. Stephen Tyler kissed me on the lips in 2016. (laughs) (laughs) And we did a fundraiser for him. But, (laughs) no, Catherine hit the nail on the head. And I think the number one issue for me, again, it goes back to the little consumer, the hardworking family. Bank of Canada this week again sounded the alarm bells over our debt levels. And if we were to have a real estate crash, the trouble we would be in. She hits the nail on the head about the Trump win. People around the world globally are getting fed up with the greed that siphons the dollars into a few pockets and leaves the rest struggling to put food on the table. And should I mention electricity bills? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Hey, we we haven't heard from uh, from from you yet, Michelle. What's the uh, what's the issue that most stands out to you from 2016? Roy, there were so many, but that said, I, I'm going to fly at thirty thousand feet because uh, Catherine and Linda carpet bombed the you know the pocketbook issues, and to me, what really is disturbing is the attack on our democracy, both in Canada and south of the border. And the, you know, the proliferation of fake news and the tall tales, and that's, you know, dog whistle for lies to get elected and nonsense. And um, I'm just, I'm really concerned because it is an emerging issue. Even Facebook has tackled it. And it's uh, the fake news and getting it out there, being the first out there. And once it's out there, that becomes the reality. And that, to me, is really dangerous. 
It's interesting you talk about that because tomorrow we're going to be talking about, in the first hour, the issue of how satisfied or unsatisfied people are with mainstream media and the work the mainstream media does. Now, I want to, say, I want to, I want to mention this to you. Must be back in, oh my, in the, uh, in the 1980s, I spoke with Peter Jennings, the former anchor at World News Tonight, and Peter was a great guy and a good friend, and uh, we were, at that time, Peter said to me that there was such pressure to be first with a story that even if, for example, if, if they had World News Tonight didn't have a story, but CBS had the story and CBS was going with it, they felt pressure uh, at ABC to do the story even without doing their usual, and I don't want to, I don't want to miss, I don't want to say anything that's incorrect. This is what he said. We, we f- would feel pressure to do the story without doing our usual checking to make sure that it's authentic. We would trust the other organization to have done that properly. There was, even then, there was a premium on being first. But I, I think, Roy, it's gotten bizarre where people will make it up yeah. and then it get, becomes a mindset for some and you can't shut it down. But, but, but the hasn't there always news been... news gets mixed up with the fake news. Hasn't there always been fake news when you, when you walk out the supermarket and, and you, you look at the tabloids? It's all fake. Most of it's fake news. I think technology has, has really made it more, way more enhanced, though, uh-huh. yeah. to get back to, you know, the timing, like, you, like you're mentioning, Roy, you know, the, the immediacy. Social media is a classic example. Yeah. I mean, you know, stuff, something flies out on social media, whether it be that Gordon Lightfoot died. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I remember. And everybody bought into it. wasn't true. Um, you know, there's stuff that I, I mean, it's interesting because I'll, I'll observe something on Twitter, say, and, and I'll go, that sounds pretty far-fetched, so I won't react to it. And yet I'll see a bunch of other people, many of whom are either legitimate journalists or economists that I know who, are, who, who should know better, frankly, but they do react to it. And then later, of course, everybody has to go, oh, mea culpa, that was not true, and so on and so forth. So I think that technology has just made the problem exponentially worse. So it's up to us individually or as media organizations or whatever role we have and stake we have to check, double-check, and triple-check. Well, and, and it's a part, free, free press, Roy, is part of democracy. And to have a qualified journalist who are holding our leaders' feet to the fire, that's a necessity with democracy. Yeah. So in a way, Michelle is absolutely right. And we have seen an attack, like the Internet is blamed for the downfall but I think there's some players and hedge funds that are getting rich, and journalism is, is getting slaughtered. So I, wanna, I think it's I, something I, that we need to be very concerned about. Yeah, One I, thing I, I'd like to add, yeah. I'm proud to be part of this group, because I don't think we disseminate information that is patently false, just for the sake of, you know, ratings. So there you go. No, we wouldn't do that. We have fun. Uh, We we cover issues that matter, and we cover them in a way that, that, you know know what matters is that uh, this segment is so well received by by our listeners, and you see that reflected on, well, social media. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.